Well, again, it's great to have everyone here. It's super great to see Tutu. I mean, she does so much for us when we're over there in country, and it's great to see her now. She's actually in Tim's class during this hour. Uh, Tim's class is just right across from the cafe, and so they're able to spend a little more time with her. Today, we are wrapping up a series called Recalibrate, and it's all about God's will. And just to remind you what we've covered, we've talked about God's sovereign will, which basically is everything that's happened is within God's sovereign will because he is sovereign over the universe, but because he's made us with free choice, even bad things that have happened, bad things that we do are within God's sovereign will, meaning he allowed it to happen. Within the sovereign will of God is a smaller area called God's moral will, and this is what God says should happen. This is the right thing to do. This is what we ought to do. And so God's moral will is also his revealed will, which we see in scripture where God tells us, hey, this is what we ought to do. We shouldn't do this. That's all God's moral will, what he instructs us to do. The first thing that God wants for all of us as people is that in his moral will, what he wants for us is that we would become believers, that we would put our trust in Jesus. And we'll talk a little bit about that later, but that's God's moral will for every person. As a matter of fact, 1 Timothy 2, 3, and 4 says, this is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So first thing God wants for your life is that you Enter into a relationship with him by putting your faith, your trust in Jesus alone. Once you do that, then God wants us to follow him. And none of us do that perfectly. But as we follow him, we try to make decisions that honor God. And so last time we came up with a grid with four points that say grid, G-R-I-D, to remind us how to stay in God's moral will. And so the G stands for go to God's word. So if it's in God's word, if we're trying to figure out whether we should do something or not, and it's addressed in the Bible, well, then that's slam dunk, game over, don't have to go any further. It's, it's, it's a done deal. That's what we should do. And if we do anything else, we are outside of God's will. So that's G, go to God's word. And then to help you remember, R, in the, in the acronym GRID, R is remember scriptural principles, remember biblical principles. And sometimes we're aided in doing that with the Holy Spirit. Biblical principles is just, we remember those. Hey, maybe it's not specifically addressed in scripture, but it's similar to other things that we see addressed in scripture so we can apply biblical principles and that will help us make a decision. Then the, after we do that, or maybe it's not in God's word, so we're moving on and there's not a biblical principle that we see attached to this decision. So then the next, the next part of these four parts is I, which stands for we need to ask the question, is it wise? Is this a wise thing to do? Now, God invites us to ask him for wisdom. We see that in James and other places that he's saying, hey, if you want wisdom, come and ask me and I'll give you wisdom. And so we ask, is it wise? Not only can we ask God about, is it wise? But then also God says that we can 
surround ourselves with counselors or other mature believers who can also speak in, that we can throw this out to them and say, what do you think about this decision? Do you think it's wise? And see what they have to say. And after you've done those three things, then D just stands for that you just decide in freedom. If none of those, if, if it's not covered in God's word, if it doesn't involve a biblical principle, if it doesn't seem to be unwise as you've prayed about it, then decide with freedom because not all decisions are moral options. You know, sometimes it's not a moral thing that we're trying to figure out. Or sometimes there are two options that are equally moral. And so then we have freedom in those areas. Although even in our freedom, we can continue to ask some wise questions like, hey, will this decision or this decision, they're both morally okay, but will one of these hinder my faith or one of these promote my faith? Or will one of these cause somebody else to stumble or sin? Or maybe the best question is simply, which of these options most honor God? And then we can ask that. A verse that I memorized as a, uh, as a teenager to help me remember that was 1 Corinthians 10.31. I did it in the King James. But it says, whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And so that's different. You know, I memorized... Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatsoever ye may do, do all for the glory of God. We remember that to, hey, we want everything we do, what brings the most glory to God? And so we remember that. But today, we've talked about all that. Today we're talking about, what if I mess up God's will for my life? What if God says to do this, but I didn't go that way, I went another way? And how does God work all that out? What hope is there left for me? How do I, I figure that out? And so this is where we are, we are following or not following God's moral will as revealed in God's word. And remember, God said, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added to us. But we, we realize and as we try to do that, that none of us are perfect, that we've all done wrong things. And sometimes that we seriously mess up. Sometimes we mess up a little bit, but it's wrong. How do we get back on track? Well, first of all, we need to understand that the Bible probably tells us a lot more about situations than we give the Bible credit for. A lot of times people really struggle with, hey, should I take this job or that job? Or what should I do at work? Well, some of this, the Bible's answered for us. The Bible says, hey, what about my work? Well, the Bible would say, work hard. Work hard. And if you're not working hard, if you're lazy at work, then you're outside of God's will. Because he says, work hard. Colossians 3.23. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men. Or relationships. A lot of people are trying to figure out what's God's will for me in a relationship. Who should I marry or something like that. Well, some of that's answered for us. God says, if you're a believer, you should only marry another believer. You should not marry a non-believer. So what does that mean? Well, if you're seriously dating a non-believer and you're a believer, you are outside of God's will in this area for your life. 
we read that, for example, in 2 Corinthians 6.14, do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? We also know that it's God's will for us to continue to grow closer to God. And regarding relationships, it's God's will for us to remain sexually pure before marriage. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that's growing closer to God, that is that you abstain from sexual immorality. Church, it's God's will that we be part of a local church. God says that if you're not part of a biblical local church, you're out of God's will for that area of your life. Uh, Hebrews 10.24 says, Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And so this has been kind of a struggle over the last three years with the COVID thing. Hey, COVID, you know, we need to get back our lives back to normal. And part of that is coming back to church and we still have people at Grace that still haven't come back. And so I'm telling you, if you're still out there and haven't come back to Grace because of COVID, unless you have some serious conditions, it's time to come back. And so we hear almost every week, somebody said, well, I, I started doing this event or that event or doing this, and then I decided, but here I'm still not even coming to church. It's time. You know, come back. We've already came back, but come back. You know, be with us. That's what God wants for your life. So we try to follow God's will and all these different things that God's telling us, but then sometimes we mess up. We stray from God's moral will. And the Bible's very honest about this. It's filled with stories of people following God and then not following God so well and then getting back on track with following God. One of the most famous stories, which is actually a historical event, is the life of David. So we, we, we remember David. David was Israel's greatest king, ancient Israel's greatest king, the second king. And uh, he is described in the Bible as a man after God's own heart. God describes David as a man after God's own heart. And so we talked a little bit about David, that he was being hunted down by Saul, Israel's first king that wasn't really following God, and all that, that happened. But here, David is, seems to do everything right, but he has this event in his life where he messes up big time. And so we're going to read that in 2 Samuel chapter 11, but leading up to chapter 11 in 2 Samuel, it reads like a highlight reel of David's life. I mean, he's doing everything right. He's nailing it. Everything's going well. He's taking care of business. Saul dies. David becomes king. He even takes care of Saul's family, even though Saul was trying to kill him. And all this is happening. And then we get to chapter 11, and, and then it goes this way in verse 1. Then it happened in the spring, at the time when kings go out to battle that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the sons of Ammon and besieged Rabath, but David stayed at Jerusalem. And right here we see the hint of the whole problem is David's not where he should be. David is a warrior king, and his country is being threatened. The historical situation 
is that the Ammonites would come in and raid Israel and plunder them. And then by the time Israel tried to respond and get an army together to deal with that, they would run back to a walled city, Ramoth, and then they had protection there. And then they would have to wait, you know, try to besiege the city. It would just take a long, long time. And so people wouldn't do that. So they, this was just a cycle. But David doesn't respond to this. Instead of going and leading his troops in battle, he sends his commander Joab and his army and they take care of business and he just lingers in Jerusalem. It continues in verse 2. Now when evening came, David arose from his bed and walked around on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful in appearance. So David sent and inquired about the woman and, the one, and, and one said, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah, the Hittite. Okay, so here's a story we've all heard, David and Bathsheba. He shouldn't be there, but he is. He's bored. He wakes up in the evening like he's been sleeping all day. He's walking around on the roof of the king's palace, which is the highest structure in Jerusalem. And from there, he has a vantage point of everybody else's house. So he can look into courtyards, he can look onto rooftops, he can look into windows to some extent. I mean, he sees things that normally you wouldn't see, and he sees this woman bathing, he checks to find out who she is, she's Bathsheba. And so they tell her that, the wife of Uriah. Now, this should strike David, because David knows Uriah. Uriah is one of David's special forces, Uriah is one of David's 30, one of David's mighty men, the special forces of Israel. So David and Uriah have a history. They kind of go back. Uriah is very loyal to David. We continue in verse 4. So David sent messengers and took her. And when she came to him, he lay with her. And when she had purified herself from her uncleanness, she returned to her house. The woman conceived, and she sent and told David and said, I'm pregnant. Then David sent to Joab, saying, Send me Uriah the Hittite. So Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked concerning the welfare of Joab and the people and the state of the war. Uriah had to be wondering what's up. Here's Uriah. He's one of the special forces, one of the 30 elite, one of the mighty men. He's a warrior. And all of a sudden, he's summoned by the commander, Joab, to go back to Jerusalem and update David on how the war's going. You know, and he's got to be thinking, you're sending, what? That's the work of a messenger. I'm a highly trained warrior, and I, I'm going to go back and just tell David what's going on with the battle. David doesn't need this. I don't need to do this. But of course, he does it. And then when he gets there, David meets with Uriah, but his whole plan is to get Uriah back to Jerusalem, meet with Uriah, then he sends a gift, which is kind of a common thing, which was usually food and wine from the king's table, and sends him out, and he's assuming that Uriah is going to take the food and the wine and go to his house, eat, drink, and be merry with his wife. You know, that's what he's expecting Uriah to do, but there's a twist. Uriah doesn't do that. Next verse. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his Lord and did not go down to his house. So there's a background here. David's men had a tradition 
when they were on mission, on a military mission, they didn't sleep with their wives. We see this in an earlier, uh, an earlier documented situation involved David eating uh, some food for, that was consecrated. And he says, no, my men haven't been with women. So Uriah is sticking with the plan. They did that because the men considered the mission that they were on as holy to God, that they were doing God's work, that they were protecting God's country, that they were doing what God would want them to do. So they just had this tradition. They didn't sleep with their wives. Well, Uriah, he holds to that, even though he's back in Jerusalem and the army is in Ramoth, he still doesn't want to do it. He, he doesn't. He sleeps at the king's doorway, which is kind of interesting because Uriah is not even Jewish. Uriah is a Hittite. But he's been attached to David probably since David has been an outlaw chased down by King Saul. And Uriah is more committed to doing things God's way than David is at this point, the king of Israel. And so it doesn't work. David hears he didn't go home. That was the whole plan, that he would sleep with his wife Bathsheba, and that would kind of remove the scandal. No DNA test back then. And so that didn't happen. So the next night, he decides to get Uriah drunk, and then maybe he'll do that, but he, he didn't again. So finally, David then sends a letter to Joab saying, here's what I want you to do, Joab, when you're in when you, you've got besieged Ramoth, I want you to go in, send somebody into the hottest part of the battle, outside the walls there, then pull everybody back and leave Uriah sort of alone to where he'll be killed. He writes that letter and then he gives it to Uriah to take to Joab, the letter that's telling Joab how to kill Uriah. And so that happens. And Uriah dies, then David marries Bathsheba, and the sin, the scandal, is covered up for a moment. God then sends his prophet Nathan to confront David about what he's done. And then if you'll remember, which I'm sure you do, he, Nathan goes into David's presence and he tells David a story. And the story goes like this. Hey, there's a guy in your kingdom who's rich and he has all kinds of sheep. He's wealthy. He's got everything he needs. And he has a neighbor and his neighbor is poor. His neighbor, as a matter of fact, only has one sheep. And because he only has one sheep, he treats it like a pet. He it stays in his house. He treats it like a pet. He favors it, almost treats this sheep like a child, like some of you do with your, with your dogs, I know. Yeah, and so he's almost, you know. And then the rich man has a guest that he wants to honor. So rather than slaughter one of his thousands of sheep, he goes to the neighbor, steals the neighbor's pet sheep, and slaughters it and has a meal. And when Nathan tells this to David, David gets angry. David responds Here's what he says. Then David's anger burned greatly against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, surely the man who has done this deserves death. He deserves to die. But he says, he must make restitution for the lamb fourfold, four times, because he did this thing and had no compassion. Then Nathan said to David, you are the man. You're the man. 
You did it. You're the one. You're guilty. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, it is I who anointed you king over Israel. It is I who delivered you from the hand of Saul. And when David hears this from Nathan, he's broken. Immediately he's confronted with his sin. He's brokenhearted. And God's saying, hey, I set you up as king. I protected you when Saul was trying to kill you. I've done all this. And here you've sinned against me, not to mention Uriah. And David is heartbroken. And he admits it. And so it continues. And David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has also taken away your sin. You shall not die, because that's the judgment David just pronounced. And Nathan's saying, you're the guy that did this. You took another man's wife. And Nathan said to him, the Lord has also taken away your sin. You shall not die. However, because by this deed you have given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also that's born to you shall surely die. So tragedy comes in this child that he has with Bathsheba will die. And by the way, back up a little bit. David was never supposed to marry multiple wives. God had told Israel, do not, your kings will not be like other kings. They're not to accumulate wives. But that's exactly what David did. I mean, he was married to Saul's daughter, but then he married Abigail, and then as he started getting victories and becoming more powerful, he just started picking up wives. And then, even if that wasn't enough, he goes and has Uriah murdered so he can have his wife as a wife. And so we see all that play out. But the consequences of that are tragic. God said, don't accumulate wives. It's weird to me because people who are critics of the Bible will say, well, the Bible promotes polygamy. And the Bible doesn't promote polygamy. Yeah, you know, all these kings like David, they had all these wives. And Solomon had all these wives. Yeah, but have you ever read the Bible? I mean, look what happened to them. God said, don't do it. They did it. And then they brought corruption and death into their families. It was awful. And as a matter of fact, it's ironic that David pronounced this judgment. He deserves to die. And then he says he has to give back fourfold. He has to give back four lambs to this man. Because later David not only loses his baby, but three of his sons die, tragically, at the hands of each other, basically. You know, first was Amnon, who basically was David's older son. Uh, and all this is, is a result of having multiple wives. He falls in love with his half-sister, Tamar. She's like, hey, you're my brother. Back off. And he doesn't. He ends up raping her. Well, then Tamar's full brother, Absalom, a couple years later, he's just waiting for opportunity. He kills him. So one brother kills another brother. And then later, Absalom, because he has never really made his relationship right, nor did David ever do anything about that, Absalom then decides he wants to become king, and he rebels against David. You know, and he actually takes David's you know, concubines, sleeps with his concubines in front of everybody after David flees Jerusalem. Well, then he ends up dying in the ensuing battle. Joab kills him. And then after that, there was Adonijah, 
Adonijah then, at the end of David's life, and David said Solomon's going to be the next king, Adonijah didn't like that, so he conspires and he gets Joab, the commander of David's army, to side with him, and they rebel against King David but, and, and try to make Adonijah king. Well, when David hears about it, he immediately makes Solomon king. Solomon initially spares Adonijah's life and says, you know, if you fly straight, you'll be okay. But Adonijah keeps scheming on how he could gain the throne. And so Solomon has him and Joab both executed. So you got brother killing brother. And all this, why? Because of the sin of accumulating wives. So it just happens over and over. It's ironic that he said four times because David lost four children. And, that's, and what do we call that? That's the natural consequences of sin. God forgave David, but then David had to live out the natural consequences of his sin. We have a bunch of wives, you have a bunch of half-brothers. All of a sudden there's all this vying and, and it gets ugly. And so when we mess up, what do we do? That's the whole point today. When we mess up, what do we do? We need direction. You know, and these days we don't even ask for directions anymore, right? Because we all got cell phones, smartphones, you know. And so we have maps or whatever. So when we're going anywhere, we just say, here's where I want to go. And then we get directions, right? But invariably, if you're like me, you, somewhere along the right, you make a wrong turn or you miss the turn, Right? And then what happens? If, if it's kind of a little miss, it'll be like, okay. Although this is what kind of irritates me is the phone voice telling me directions gets irritated when I miss a turn. Like the voice is, and that shouldn't be. I need to change the voice. Hey, why do I need my phone getting on me? But anyway, you miss the turn. And then if it's a little thing, you're guided right back to where you were and you get on the same exact route, Right? But sometimes you can miss a turn so bad that there's no going back, right? And then you're rerouted, recalculated, recalibrated, which is why we're calling this whole series. It's recalculated for you to go on another way. The whole system is recalibrated for you to get to your destination, but now you're not on your original route anymore. That's what God does for us, we trust God. So how do we do it? No matter what's happened, we trust God. Hey, I've messed up. God still has direction for your life. We can still, he will recalibrate for us and we can follow him. So the question is, how do we do that? If we've messed up, if we know we're out of God's will, how do we fix that? How do we follow him? First of all, we need to understand that God's will is not a dot, it's a circle. Now let me explain that. A lot of people have taught that, let's say Sandusky County represents God's sovereign will. Everything that happens is represented by the area of Sandusky County. And then let's say we have 15 acres here. And I'm not, saying cause we're, I'm not saying we're the only church in town. This is an illustration. Are you with me here? So there's 15 acres at Grace Community, and we're saying, but these 15 acres, these are God's moral will inside of God's sovereign will. Everybody tracking with me? So God's sovereign will is everything that happens in Sandusky County, 
But God's moral will is everything that happens at church. If you want to be in his moral will, you come to this 15 acres. But then people would say, for God's individual will for your life, that's just a pinpoint. That's just a spot. That's a dot. And so within God's moral will, the 15 acres, there's just one spot, and you find that, and you stand on that. And now I'm in the center of God's will for my particular life. But then what happens? What always happens when we feel like we, we've done this? Sooner or later, we mess up and we step off of God's will, right? How many here has ever done anything wrong? All right, you're with me, right? Right? We step off of God's will and do something wrong, right? Right, we do that. And so the question is, if I've stepped off, how do I get back on? Well, if you've stepped off in, in some way that doesn't have long consequences, you step on by repenting of your sin. You admit it and repent. You confess it. You say, well, that was wrong. I just stepped off of God's will. I'm going to go step back on God's will. So I admit I'm wrong, and now I repent. I want to do right, so I step on. But this keeps happening. And here's a bigger problem. Sometimes when we step off of God's will, we step so far off of God's will for our personal life that we can't go back. Some decisions we make have lasting consequences. For example, I was a believer going along and I wanted to get married and then I married a non-believer. Okay, you've stepped off God's will. Now, how do I get back? God doesn't say, now divorce that person and do it again. No, God says, now God's will for you is different. It's not on that path anymore. Now it's, you need to be the best spouse you can be to this non-believer and try to win them to Christ. So, what, what we're saying is, because of that, and so if you believe in the spot, once you do something like that, or you divorce somebody that you shouldn't have divorced, and then they went on to marry somebody else, or what we see with young people today, they transition their gender, then realized that they should not have done that, that that didn't fix any of their problems. This is happening all the time now. But they can't detransition all the way back because they've done some physical things to themselves or had them done. So then... So these have lasting consequences. You can't get back to the dot. Well, that's the problem with the dot. Actually, God's individual will for a life, it's not just a dot. It would be like a circle, like this platform. So inside God's sovereign will is God's moral will. Inside God's moral will is what God wants for our particular lives. But that's not a spot. That's a circle. So no matter where we are, when we step outside of God's will, there's always a way back into the circle of God's will so that we can be back in God's will doing what he wants us to do. And there is always hope for us, no matter what decision we've made in the past, if we are willing to admit that and repent and come back to God, we can then be again inside God's will for our individual life. Does that make sense? I'll try it one more time. Does that make sense? Yes. So because of that, God's will is not a spot or a dot or a pinpoint. God's will is a circle inside of God's moral will, which is inside of God's sovereign will.
So we understand that God's will for our individual lives is a circle, not a dot, number one. Number two, trust God, not your heart. Now that sounds weird to you because it's against every Disney movie you've ever watched in your life. Trust God, not your heart. Trust God, not your heart. Proverbs 3, 5 and 6 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your paths straight. You step off, acknowledge God, follow God, and he will give you the path to be in his will. Jeremiah 17.9 says, The heart, our heart, the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? He's telling us, following your heart is foolish because our hearts can be deceitful and wicked. Now, here's the way it plays out amongst us. Somebody will will step outside of God's will, they'll go across the street, you know, and then they'll say, you'll, you'll say, what are you doing? And, and they won't say, well, I'm following my heart. They'll say, well, God wants me to be happy, right? Well, God wants me to be happy. God is not calling you to be happy. God is calling you to be holy, and so, but when we follow God and we're sanctified, we're trying to be more and more like him, which is holiness. We're just trying to follow him and none of us do that perfectly. Then God lets other things fall into place in our life. That brings more joy in our life than it does when we're just chasing happiness because our hearts are twisted. We desire wrong things in our heart. So don't trust your heart, trust God. And then follow God and he'll make your path straight. So what I'm saying is, you can go through all kinds of tragedy in your life, but as soon as you will want to follow God, he will straighten all that out. There's a story of one of our guys uh, that we have that, that will illustrate this. This is Chris Pay. things as a child that most kids shouldn't have to deal with. My parents got divorced at a young age. They remained alcoholics through a lot of that time, uh, raised a lot of hardship for my sister and I. It led to my uncle eventually taking custody of us, and through that, it wasn't much better. I ended up taking a lot of the financial burden, working multiple jobs throughout high school, and trying to take care of my sister, carry a good grade point average and have some friends. Throughout college, it was a lot of the same. I felt pretty worthless. I felt like God had forgotten about me. When things got hard, uh, I would move. I was in six cities, two states, uh, five different career changes, 10 different homes in nine years. I ended up finding myself in Fremont, Ohio, and I didn't really know anybody. I was pretty sure I was gonna remain unhappy for the rest of my life. I ended up meeting a good buddy though, um, Tyler, who invited me to Fremont Grace, and that's where I tried to find hope. Pastor Kevin was talking about Fight Club, and I 
dove right into the challenge. I didn't know Jesus. I had so many questions and it's amazing when you reach out to your squad leader and others how willing they are to help you uh, figure it out and point you in the right direction. So I accepted Jesus into my heart in the spring of 2018. I told Jesus I'm done trying to live life on my own. Um, I'm listening now. I'm ready to follow wherever you want to take me. I was baptized at the end of my first chapter of Fight Club. I was overwhelmed. I was full of joy. I really just wanted everybody to know that I accepted Jesus into my life. Shortly after finding uh, grace and accepting Jesus in my life, I found CrossFit Tiffin. It's my gym home. Um, I got to meet my wife there and a lot of amazing people. So a lot of those people now attend church with me at Tiffin Campus. Uh, we sit in the front row. So we're the punchline of Pastor Zach's CrossFit jokes from time to time, and that's okay. Because we can definitely take him in the parking lot after church if need be. Uh, looking back, I can see how God's been working in my life. He used hardship and adversity to um, prepare me for the man that I am today. I'm truly blessed and thankful for everything that he's done for me and the opportunities that he's given me. I've learned from them and it's given me the chance to give back to those in our community and help those who need it through our life support group at the Tiffin campus. Five years ago, I would have said the life that I'm living now is a dream, and I'm not deserving of it. Jesus changes everything. So again, it just reminds us that no matter what you're going through, no matter what issues, chains, problems, whatever has happening, God, if you just put your, your faith, your trust in Christ and look to Him for direction, you can break through all of that. That's what God wants us. So what do we do? So just know, no matter what you've gone through, that's part of God's sovereign will, whether it was in his moral will or not, God is still inviting you to follow him. That's what he wants for you. No matter what's going on in your life. So what do we do when we mess up? When we know we've gotten off the wrong track, we've made a bad decision, and now it's continuing. What do we do? How do we deal with that? Well, we do just what David did. First of all, we confess, we admit it, is what confession means. We admit what we've done was wrong if it was outside of God's will. And then we repent, which means we have this desire not to do that again. And so that's exactly how David reacted. He said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Now here's the thing. David didn't justify his sin. David didn't excuse his sin. David didn't say, well, you know, I would have never done that. I was, you know, I, I was just minding my own business. On the, you know, he didn't go into all that. He said, I have sinned. It's amazing to me when we talk to people, people who would describe themselves as believers, and they'll get off track with God outside of his moral will, and they'll come in because their life starts falling apart, and then I'll say, well, well, you know, you did this, or their friends will tell them, well, well you did that, you shouldn't have done that. I mean, what did you expect would, would happen? And then people will excuse it. They'll justify it. Well, I wouldn't have done that if this and this and this. What amazes me when people do that is, why can't you admit that it's wrong? God says it's wrong. Well, but, but this, but, but God says it's wrong. So there's no buts. God says it's wrong. 
What amazes me is I get when non-Christians do that, but it blows my mind when Christians do that because Christians are the people who admit, I've sinned. You can't even be a Christian without knowing that you've sinned. So why is it so hard for us who we, we know we're sinners, we have to know that even to become a Christian, why is it so hard for us to say, hey, yeah, I messed up, I sinned here. So we repent and we turn to God. And here when we do that, when David admits it, immediately in the very same verse, here's what it says, I read it a while ago. And Nathan said to David, the Lord, has all, has, the Lord also has taken away your sin, you shall not die. David said, that guy deserves death, but he needs to pay fourfold. And Nathan says, yes, you're right, you're guilty, but you shall not die. And when he says, take away, your sin is taken away there, he has taken away your sin. That phrase actually is passed over. God has passed over your sin. And it would have reminded David or anybody in Israel of the Passover. I mean, that goes back to the first Passover when God was using Moses to deliver his people from Israel when Israel was just starting as a nation, one family basically. And then what happened, you know, there were all the the plagues, and then it ended with the death of the firstborn, and then God says, hey, protect my people. What you need to do is you need to slaughter an innocent lamb, take its blood, put that around your doorpost of your house, and the destroyer will go over. He will pass over you and not justly deal with your sin. And that passed over, what that means is David's sin didn't just evaporate, and the sins of the people of God's people in Egypt didn't just go away. They were passed over. That means there was something else that took its place. In their case, it was the death of this lamb that just temporarily for that night covered their sin. The death of an innocent lamb. And for David, how could his sins be taken away? Because the son of David would come and pay for our sins. And that's what God is telling all of us. He's inviting us into relationship with him no matter what. And here's the thing that people get confused. When we sin against God, there are two types of consequences every time. There are natural consequences and there are judicial consequences. Natural consequences is what David experienced because he married a bunch of wives and his, his sons started killing each other. That's just natural consequences. That was not God not forgiving him. God forgave him. But he experienced the natural consequences. If you have an affair or do something, well, God can forgive you of that. But you, your marriage, you may never get your marriage back. Natural consequence. So there's natural consequences that we experience during life. But then worse, there's judicial consequences where God's saying, everyone who's sinned, and we've all sinned, that there is, a, there is justice in the world. So if you have been a victim of abuse or have taken advantage of, like Bathsheba or Uriah, God says that sin will be paid for. Every sin that's committed, every sin that you and I have done, either will be paid for with an eternity in hell or it will be paid for by Jesus Christ because you became a believer. The only two options. 
eternity in hell or Jesus will pay for your sin on the cross of Calvary. And so God, in his love for us, he gives us freedom. We've misused that freedom. We've stepped off outside of God's moral will. But God keeps loving and he keeps inviting us back. And he wants to give us a new life. And he wants to forgive us. And the way we do that is we admit that we've sinned. We turn to God in repentance. And we put our trust in Christ and Christ alone. We put our trust, our faith, our belief in Jesus and Jesus alone. And we realize there's no good things that we can do to make up for sin. There's no good thing you can ever do that erases a sin. That's justice. And we actually want a just God until it comes to our life. And so before we close this series, and we're going to start a new series, and we're going to see this all play out through the life of Joseph. And that series is called Rough Crowd. But before we get there, as we're wrapping this off, we just need to remember, God wants you to have a relationship with him. And if you don't have that, then I want to give you an opportunity to turn to Christ before we move on this morning. So right now, I'd like everyone to bow your heads. And again, if you're not sure that you've come to a point that you've realized that you sinned against God and that you can't fix that sin, you can't erase it by doing good things. Good things are what we're supposed to do. It's what we're created to do. That doesn't erase a sin, a wrong. And you've come to realize that it's only Jesus that can pay for your sin. It's either you or Jesus, you in hell or Jesus on the cross. And if you've never come to a point where you understood all that and said, I'm putting my trust in Christ right now, today, for my salvation, knowing I can't earn it in any way. If you haven't done that, do that today. God's inviting you into his will, his moral will. And that's the first step. And so if you're trusting in Christ, you can express that to him through a simple prayer. And you should. You should tell him. You should express it. And so I invite you to pray along with a, a, a prayer. You can do it silently. God knows your every thought. Just something like this to express your newfound faith in Jesus. Father God, I admit that I have sinned against you, other people, but mostly against you. And God, I understand that that sin needs to be paid for because you are a just God over the universe and justice is coming. But God, I also realize that you love me. And right now, I realize that Jesus died on the cross to pay for my sin and I'm putting my faith, my trust, my belief, my hope in Christ and Christ alone for my salvation. And I, and I want to follow you, God. Help me to do that. Thank you for loving me. Thank you for allowing Jesus to die for me. In Christ's name, amen. If you keep your heads bowed for just a moment, you know, it, we always encourage people to tell people when you've made this decision. And so I'm just going to ask you, and I'll try to do this without embarrassing you, or making you stand up or, or do something you don't want to do. But while our heads are bowed, if you'll just raise your hand to say, hey, Kevin, Today, or maybe it wasn't today, maybe it's in the last week or two. Hey, I've made this decision to follow Christ. Just want you to know about it. Just put your hand up where I can see it and put it back down. I see you right here. Thank you. Thank you. Just put it up where I can see it and put it right back down. 
Maybe I missed you over here uh, on the quad side. Just put it up and back down. Appreciate your responses on that. Let's stand together as we close our service. No matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, God is offering you a way out. Focus your heart on him.